want to continue in our study in John chapter 8 this morning. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. It's immediately following the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, it's the very next day. He's still there. A lot of the crowds who have traveled into Jerusalem for the feast are probably now packing up, getting ready to go home. But they're kind of hanging out, I think, a little bit longer because they want to get some more time with Jesus. I mean, he's creating some buzz in the city. And so there, there's still crowds around. Last week, Jesus has just had this interaction with the woman caught in adultery. Immediately following that, he turns back to his teaching ministry, which he had started back in the early part of chapter 8. In fact, the woman caught in adultery was dropped in his lap, so to speak, in the middle of a teaching session, right? So he gets back to teaching, but now we're going to see that he begins to interact with the Jewish religious leaders again. And what he's going to do is he's going to start reintroducing a bunch of courtroom terminology. We're going back to the courtroom today. Witnesses, legal validation on witnesses, all this kind of stuff. And if that sounds familiar, a couple of years ago when we were in John 5, just kidding, it's only been a couple months, when we were in John 5, you heard a lot of this courtroom terminology in John 5. We're going to hear a lot of it repeated this morning, but in shorthand. The reason I believe it's in shorthand is because this is the exact audience that Jesus talked to in John 5, 12 or 18 months prior to what we're about to read here. So they've heard this before. He's just going to reiterate some of these things for them. And as we're going to see, it hasn't made a dent in their thinking. Parents, have you ever told your kids something one time and they got it, right? They always get it the first time, don't they? Well, maybe that's just my kids. They're just brilliant, you know, Harvard-educated scholars, or they're on their way to Harvard. We had a surgeon at age nine, right? All that kind of stuff. No, we're just like our children, too. Sometimes we hear something once, and guess what? We need to hear it again. And then guess what? After two times, you get it, right? Not all the time. And so this is the group that Jesus is talking to. So he's going to repeat some of the same stuff this morning. In terms of the flow of the passage, we had that whole discussion last week. We won't reiterate it. Does the woman caught in adultery, does it belong here in the account of John? Does it belong somewhere else in John? Does it belong in Luke? We're not going to get into that again. But assuming that it's genuine and it belongs there, one interesting connection, if we jump back in context, and I want you to see this, Jesus is going to say something mind-blowing in verse 12. Let's read it really quickly. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the question is, what does Jesus mean by that? There's lots of options here. One of the options, in fact, I was having breakfast with Alex Musser, and he pointed this out to me, and I just thought it was such a great observation. Jump back up to 752 for a second. It says, they answered him. This is the religious leaders. They're knocking Nicodemus down a notch here. They're criticizing Nicodemus because Nicodemus is trying to give Jesus a fair shake. But then verse 52, it says, they answered him and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And then notice what Jesus says again in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, why did Jesus say that? Well, it could have been because of Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, which reads this, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, 
a light has shined. Is that why Jesus went here with one of his I am statements? I think it's a possibility. I think it's a good possibility. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes, the light of the world is going to come out of Galilee. It's the idea. Let's talk about some more potentials there. Verse 12, we just read. But one of the things we're going to learn in verse 20 is that Jesus is in the treasury when he gives these words. Now, I don't know how well you can see that. Okay, not, not very well. That's a temple compound picture. And in this area right here, that's the area of the treasury. One of the things that you can't see is the writing up there, I believe, but it's also known as the court of the women. The court of the women were in that area. It's probably one of the busiest places in the temple. This is where Jesus is going to say what he's about to say. So he's in this area of the treasury. What you also can't see there is there are light stands in that area. And guess what? We'll see during the Feast of Tabernacles, guess what they did to those light stands? They lit them up. <laughs> and guess what happened after the Feast of Tabernacles ended? They stopped lighting them up. They took the torch. They took the fire off. Jesus is standing up the day after and says, I'm the light of the world. These are some things that are building in as, as possibilities in terms of what he's talking about. Notice that it says Jesus spoke to them again. So it seems to be a, a natural progression, even if we've got this interrupted story in between, possibly from 752, because now he's addressing uh, again the religious leaders. So he speaks to them again. And what he says is, I am the light of the world. For those that have been tracing, we, we like this Greek phrase, ego, a me. It kind of sounds like Lego, my ego. Those, you know, those that watch commercials back in the 80s and 90s, right? Ego just means I am. A me means I am. So it seems redundant, like, like Jesus is stuttering here, but he's not. He's making a very specific statement, tying himself back to the burning bush event in Exodus 3 with Moses. I am that I am. This is one of Jesus's I am statements at this very moment, he is the light of the world, is what he's saying to his audience here. We've got that QR code on our table back there. We're putting these charts. So we've got the seven I am statements of Jesus on a chart that you can access on our website through that QR code on the back table. Uh, We won't go over all these right now. This is one of those I am claims that Jesus is making. And the question is, why did he say that here? What prompted him to say this? Why did he go to light all of a sudden? What were some reasons? We're going to look at some reasons. We've already alluded to the potential connection to Isaiah 9, which I think is a strong connection there. But there's a couple of other cultural insights that's maybe why he did this. One thing that's interesting is you trace, because remember, John is not trying to record every little detail of Jesus' life. He's very strategic in what he's recording. One of the things you see is when you look at chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, kind of building into this, you're going to see that Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of much of what God did for the nation of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. In fact, in chapter 6, you're going to see that the manna God provided, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. And so he's meeting that need through the manna. He's the fulfillment of the manna that the nation received in the wilderness. Chapter 7, what about the water from the rock? As the people were dehydrated and lacking water. Moses, remember, he struck the rock. He was supposed to speak to it a second time, but he hit it again out of anger, right? But it was this rock that provided water. Jesus, in chapter 7, what did he say? I am the living water. I am the water of life. This is what he says. I'm the fulfillment of the water that Yahweh provided for your fathers in the wilderness. And in chapter 8, I believe maybe what he's saying in terms of the light of the world is that the pillar of fire, remember the pillar of fire would would come out at night when when God wanted the nation to move in darkness, and he would light the way for them. 
And as the pillar of fire went, they, they were to follow them. And as they walked close to the fire, guess what happened? They could see. That makes sense. Anyone that's ever been in the dark with a flashlight, you typically hang out with the person with the flashlight becomes everyone's best friend in the dark because you want to see what's going on. He is the light of the world. So it could be that. Maybe Jesus is building this, or maybe this is a, something that John recognized years after writing it. The one I, I mentioned earlier is part of the Feast of Tabernacles was something called the lamp lighting ceremony. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the most joyous times of year for Jewish people. It's one of those feasts where they, they were not only religiously excited, but, but patriotically excited about the nation and what God was going to do in the future. And this lamp lighting festival, they would light these these areas, the, these lampstands that were in the treasury area in the women's court where Jesus is now teaching. They would actually light these things. And what people would do is they would leave them lit all night. And guess what? From down in the valleys where they were camped out, they could look up and the temple was just full of light all night long. It was just this beautiful image that God is there with them. His presence is there with them. And then guess what? Many of them wouldn't stay in their tents. You know what they would do? They would create their own little torches and they would go light, light, kind of like the Olympic, you know, light. They'd go up to, to enlight the light from the torch that had been set. And then they would just sing and dance and move around. And it was just this joyous celebration. And some would do that all night long. Wouldn't even go to sleep. Maybe Jesus is alluding to this. The lights have been turned off because it's the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's saying, I'm the light of the world. I light this thing up, basically. So it could be that. Culturally, too, the Jews considered the Old Testament and their traditions as authoritative revelation, the true light. Maybe Jesus was saying, you consider the Torah, the Tanakh, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, light. I am that light. So it could have been a number of these things. We don't really know. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily explain it here. But the point is this. He's telling them, and, and what we're going to see here as we go forward, is he is going to tell them again. And this is what we've got to understand about our God. He, he's amazing this way. We observe Advent, and you can see it all through the Old Testament. God is a communicator. He's not the teenager down at the local grocery store that just grunts at you when you try to talk to him. He's a communicator. All throughout history, he has desired to communicate. He has a passion to communicate what he's doing so that you and I will understand what he's doing. And then when he points it forward, we can say, praise God, he said that was coming. Praise God, he said it was going to work that way. And we can see it because he's told us in advance. And you know what? Jesus is in the midst of people that want to kill him. You know what Jesus' main concern is? Not saving his own hide. He is still trying to communicate with them who he is and why they should trust in him alone. He is making every effort passionately to describe why they can trust who he is, his identity, where he's from, what he's been sent to do, he wants them to know. One of the things he said in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Follow just means to attend, to accompany, to go with or follow a teacher. It's moving behind someone in the same direction, everything that we would think of following. And again, it makes logical sense. If you're walking behind someone that's got light, or in this case, he is the light, then guess what? You won't be in darkness. This picture just represents that, right? You, you obviously wouldn't want to be on that road without a flashlight. It'd be a little frightening. Even twigs start to sound like jaguars after a while. You know, that, that's kind of the fear of, of being in the dark. It wasn't until I was probably 16 years old that I would even go in our family's house in the basement to get a fudge pop from the freezer. Like I would make my brother to go get it because I, there was no light down there. 
I'm scared to death. But the point is, is you're following light. You are now in the light. You can see. You've got the ability to see. This is what he's saying. If you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness. It's the Greek double negation. We bring this up a lot. Ume, meaning never, no, not ever. It's the strongest way you can negate something. It's the strongest way to say it can't happen. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. You're going to have clarity of thinking. You're going to have the ability to truly identify who I am and to validate that what I'm saying is true. He's saying, don't stand off to the side. Don't stand away from me. Don't speculate who I am. Just come closer. That's all he's saying. Just consider what I'm saying. If you come closer, you're going to step in the light. You're going to see things. And this is what Jesus, I believe, is encouraging them. One of the things he's going to say, and this is a promise, but you have the light of life. If you come closer, if you follow, you will have future indicative. This is God's way or Jesus's way of promising this is going to be true of you. You'll have the light of life. And it's so amazing. Jesus always uses these illustrations of practical things in terms of eternal life. What did he do in John 4? It was water that gave you life. It's water you'll never have to draw again. In John 6, it was you eat one time, you'll never be hungry again. And here it's like, you follow me, you'll never need light again in the sense of you're going to be standing next to the light. You're going to be able to see spiritually. It's a guaranteed promise. The idea is that Jesus is saying, I think if we said it in a just a simple way, will you come closer and just investigate my claims? Will you come closer and just consider what I'm saying to you? Can we talk? Will you allow me to reason with you through the truth of what is true of me? The problem is, is many people, many religious people in general, they don't realize they're in darkness. They think you need to come into their light. And that's kind of how the Pharisees were thinking, you're light, you come into our light, my man. You're in darkness, you're a deceiver, you're... Jesus, you're the problem. They had it all backwards. And that's oftentimes, as we've said many times, religion does get things backwards. One of the things that's interesting, again, just that tie to 732, what did the religious leader said? Search and look, Nicodemus. Search and look. Is there anything comes out of Galilee? And Jesus is basically saying, if you will search and look, you're going to see. You're going to see the light of the world is designed to come out of Galilee. In fact, that was a very messianic prediction too. We'll look at another verse here in a second. So this leads completely to the rebuttal. You're going to see in the very next verse where their heart is. They are rejection-oriented. That is their default mode of Jesus Christ, just reject him. And we're going to see that here in this very next verse. Verse 13 says this, The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself, and your witness is not true. And as I mentioned before, a lot of what we're about to see in the next few, few verses is just a repeat of John 5. You almost feel like, well, why is it even in here? I think it's to show that he went into extreme detail in John 5, and here we are 12 to 18 months later, and none of it made a dent. None of it made a dent in their thinking. He's going to review some of the same points because this is their objection. Their objection is, you bear witness of yourself, and your witness is not true. John 5, Jesus recognized that from a legal perspective, this is true. Jesus said this in John 5, 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. It wasn't that Jesus was saying he wasn't telling the truth. He just recognized from a legal perspective, self-witness is the most easily rejected witness, right? In fact, just think about it in our justice system. Hey, did you kill that person? Nope, I didn't kill that person. I wasn't even there. Okay, we'll let you go. 
That just doesn't work, right? Even self-witness in our legal system is the weakest form of testimony. This is all Jesus is recognizing here. And they come back to this again, even though Jesus had explained, I'm not the only witness here, guys. In fact, we're going to see as a reminder from John 5 that Jesus gave four other witnesses beside himself. The first one was God the Father. He's going to go back to him as a witness in our passage this morning. The second one was John the Baptist. He won't bring him up here in John 8. The third one was Jesus's signs and miracles. They were also witnesses. They gave testimony to who Jesus was. He's not going to bring that up here in John 8. And then number four, the Old Testament scriptures testified of Jesus Christ. These are all the witnesses that Jesus gave in John 5. By the way, what is the Jewish legal standard for an adequate amount of witnesses? Two to three. How many did Jesus give? Four. In addition to himself, that would have been five. He had an overwhelming abundance of legal witnesses to his identity, and they still rejected him. This is the same exact audience who had gotten all five of these witnesses previously in John 5. So rather than evaluating his claim that he's the light of the world, they just rejected him on the basis of what? He was giving a self-testimony. They said, it's not good enough. So we're rejecting you on the basis of a self-testimony. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, Jesus gave them something good that could come out of Galilee. These guys cannot even capture the idea of the majors. They are letting the minors get in the way of the majors. And they did this all throughout their life, right? These Jewish religious leaders, they would tithe on like on very fine spices, specks of spices. And then they would go to a widow's house and, and somehow rob her of her inheritance for the sake of God. They would dedicate money in their own life. They would, they would use this word korban. It was korban. And then their, their own parents couldn't even get access to money if their parents had fallen on hard times. These guys were hypocrites. They were just absolutely legal, technicality hypocrites. The main point that they should have been investigating was not, is he giving a self-witness? They just use that to write him off. Is what he's saying true? Are there any additional witnesses? How can we validate and verify those? That wasn't their concern at all. They were just like, nope, self-witness, he's out. It was kind of their idea. By the way, as I mentioned, Isaiah 49, 6 says this, speaking of the Messiah prediction. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Okay, in other words, I think you could say, and let me read the next phrase, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. In other words, you're not just going to be sent to be the savior of Israel, right? But he goes on to say, I will also give you as a light, (laughs) there's that concept again, to the Gentiles, that you should be what? My salvation, where? To the ends of the earth. Did Jesus not just encapsulate Isaiah 49, 6? I am the light of Israel, or I am the light of the world. That's exactly, he he just encapsulates Isaiah 49, 6. These guys should have heard Jesus say this and say, wait a minute, I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. Flip through my scroll, you know, roll this thing out. Ah, there it is, Isaiah 49, 6. And they should have investigated it further, but they didn't. No, self-witness, rejected, we don't have to listen. And this is why they say his witness is not true. Or better said, your witness is not valid. Your own personal testimony is not valid. The implication that they're, they're making is he doesn't have any corroborating witnesses. He doesn't have any other witnesses that he can produce as to his identity. They must have forgotten John chapter 5. They must have forgotten that entire conversation where he just kept throwing out witness after convincing witness. They just forgot all about that. Now Jesus is going to go through 
and review his teaching from John 5 in a very succinct fashion. One of the things that he's going to say in verse 14 is just because self-witness isn't valid in a legal courtroom, it doesn't mean that it's always false. There are sometimes people give a self-witness that's true. This is what Jesus is going to say in verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Jesus is saying, even if I bear witness of myself alone, it doesn't automatically knock me out of telling the truth or that it doesn't invalidate my claim of self-identification. It may not stand up in a legal setting, but it doesn't mean that I'm not telling the truth because he was telling the truth. In fact, he can't lie. And what I want you to notice here is he's going to give the reason here within this verse why what he's saying is the truth. It's very subtle, but you'll notice that word for. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true for. You might insert because. He's going to give the reason now. How does Jesus know that his witness is true? What reason is he giving to claim that his testimony is true? He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. He, he understands who he is and his purpose on earth from the, from the perspective of the Godhead. Jesus understands this. I love this word know. It means to know intuitively or instinctively. It's not that Jesus came to know this or grew in his understanding, realized one day when he was 30, oh, I think I'm the Messiah. No, he knew it. He's known it is is the idea. It, It refers to the past act of seeing with the present effect of knowing what was seen. And Jesus had no issue understanding where he was from, heaven, what he was gonna do, live a perfect life and die for our sins and where he was going back to heaven, ascended as the savior of the world with a name higher than any other name. He knew all that. So why wouldn't his testimony be true? He's telling telling them exactly who he is and they just won't believe him. By the way, in contrast to Jesus, they don't know anything. They don't know anything about Jesus. In fact, this word know is, is the same exact word know that was used earlier. In fact, it seems when they try to understand more, they just get more confused. This is what's going on with the audience here. One of the things we see here, nothing that Jesus has said, nothing that Jesus has done has even made or begun to make a dent in their thinking. They're still just rejecting him on very cursory grounds. Now, the reason they don't, Jesus is going to tell them, this is why you guys aren't seeing things clearly. Number one, you're not following the light. You're not really engaging with what I'm saying. That's number one. But the other thing is, and he says this really succinctly in the next phrase, they're evaluating him from the wrong source. They're just completely evaluating him from the wrong source, and they're trusting their evaluation. That's a problem. That's a sidebar for an application. There are situations in our lives all the time that we will evaluate a situation and we are just cotton-picking and convinced that we are right. And yet in the next breath, we would admit we don't know everything, but we're right in this situation. And we will convince ourselves of this time and time again, no matter how many times new information comes to light and we realize that we didn't have it right to begin with, the very next situation we have an opportunity to, we will be cotton-picking and convinced again that our evaluation is accurate. Am I telling the lie? That's the truth. We do that all the time. This is why many of us can't get along with people. We have conflict going on in our life constantly, whether it's in our family, with friends, at work, in the community. It's because the second we evaluate something, we're convinced of it. 
Do you know why that guy cut me off on the road? Because he's a jerk, he's in a hurry, he doesn't care anything about my family, and he's trying to kill me. It's possible he didn't see you. Just saying. He might even be a pastor. (laughs) Sometimes we don't get it right. It's the point. These guys aren't going to get it right. In fact, Jesus is going to say in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. That's their problem. (laughs) This is the issue here. Their, Their evaluator is off. They're not seeing things clearly because we're going to see they don't have all the facts. And boy, that is, that is a humbling thing to realize in every situation in your life before you pass judgment on somebody else. Can you just take a step back? Can we just take a step back and say, you know what? I might not have all the facts. You know, if these guys would have done that there, I think they would have made progress. But they didn't because they were convinced they had all the facts. They were convinced that their evaluation was right. And they were dead wrong. They were absolutely dead wrong. Judge means to form or give an opinion, separating, the considering, separating and considering the particulars of a case. Because they didn't know where Jesus came from or where he was going, they simply did not have all the facts to form. Did they know a little bit about Jesus' background? Yes, this was the problem. <laughs> they had partial information that they were 100% confident in that never allowed them to consider anything else. What did they know? Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Jesus, as we're going to see, had a questionable birth situation. I don't want to say anything about that, but it's kind of questionable. We'll see. They're going to say something about it in John chapter 8. They're going to bring that up. Kind of interesting that we're celebrating the Christmas season in the midst of this passage because they're going to, they're going to throw some questions on his origins here. And they're going to do it right here at the end of our passage this morning. Here's the thing. They wouldn't even consider anything else. Jesus had provided four valid witnesses for them to take into consideration. And here they are back in, back in verse 13. Nope, we're not trusting you. Self-witness isn't good enough. No joke. That's why I gave you four others 12 months ago. <laughs> so you would actually take the time to consider it. They wouldn't do it. Their mind was made up. Their evaluators were off because they're judging according to the flesh. That was the source from which they were passing judgment. Now, Jesus makes an interesting statement. It's interesting because if, if you can remember, I know we've all slept a few times since John 5, but if you remember what he said in John 5, this next statement that Jesus makes in verse 15 actually seems like a contradiction. And one of the things that you're going to see Jesus say here is that he judges no one, right? And you're like, wait a minute. I thought in John 5, he was the judge. Now he's saying, I'm not judging anyone. Like, how does this fit? You know, does it fit? Does it kind of go together? Well, I think what Jesus is saying here, well, by the way, he uses the same word judge here that was used in the previous phrase. And the contradiction, let me just bring this up. John 5, John 5, 22, Jesus says the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Wait a minute, you judge no one, but you, you know, it's like, what's going on? 527, the Father has given him, Jesus, the authority to execute judgment. 530, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Now, what is Jesus saying? Well, I don't think Jesus is contradicting himself at all. I think he's using what I would call I don't even know if this is a thing. This is, I probably should have looked it up, contextual shorthand. In other words, in context, what is he saying? You're judging according to the flesh. I don't judge according to the flesh. That's what I think he's saying. I just don't think he said that extra phrase. He's just saying he judges no one according to the flesh. 
the manner by which they're judging and evaluating his identity is a manner that he never judges anybody, is what I believe he's saying here. In fact, if you look at verse 16, he's going to allude to the fact that he's going to be involved in potential future judgments. I don't think he's saying, I don't judge anybody. But then John 5 says, I judge everybody. And you're like, what's going on? He said, I think he's saying, I don't judge anyone according to the flesh. I don't judge anyone the same way you guys judge people. I do it in a righteous or a just way. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm not not limited to the same set of facts that you're limited to. I've actually got all the facts, and my judgment is right because I'm judging according to the will of the one sending me, the one who has sent me, and he's going to get into that. Everything that Jesus is saying here is given in much more detail in John chapter 5. If you want more detail, go back to that. But we can, again, see this audience isn't listening. They're not considering what he's telling them. They're not even coming into the light regarding his identification, nor are they even interested in considering that. They're just so far gone in terms of rejection. They just won't hear anything that he says. This is why I think in verse 16, Jesus goes on to say, basically, that he's got backup, that he's making an evaluation, and he's not the only one standing on an island making this determination. He's got backup, and he's got the best backup you can have in the universe, God the Father. God the Father is with Jesus and how he's evaluating this thing. He says this, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus uses an if. It's a third-class condition. He doesn't use a lot of these, but third-class condition is kind of maybe he, maybe he will, maybe he won't. It's, it's a way of communicating something in an argument to, without being, being very dogmatic. And so what he's saying is hypothetically, if he did pass judgment, and he will, I mean, that's not what he's assuming in this argument, but he's saying hypothetically, if he did, he would judge accurately. He would judge truthfully. He would judge from a different source from the flesh, which by the way, there's only one other source besides the flesh. What is that? It's the spirit of God. So it's divine sourcing. He's not gonna judge according to the flesh. And this is why he says, my judgment is true. It doesn't have to be hidden. It, you don't, I don't have to keep this in secret, is the idea. It speaks of someone who cannot lie. His judgment is true because he cannot lie. Guess who else that's true of? God the Father. It's true of Yahweh, the Godhead, of which God the Son is the second person of that triune God. He cannot lie. It's not even possible for him to miscarry justice, which is such an interesting thought to consider even from last week where he didn't miscarry judgment against the woman caught in adultery. He just delayed it. Six months where he paid for her adultery on the cross. He paid for her sin on the cross. He says, I'm not alone. I've got the Father backing me up. It was the Father who sent me. Again, he's not by himself. And Jesus is clearly saying the area of evaluating not only himself, his identity and purpose, but also in the area of judging other things. He's not on an island by himself. He's got somebody that would back him up in the evaluations that he made and say, yep, those are good. Those are sound. That's taking into consideration all of the information. And guess who backs him up? The only witness that matters, God the Father. So it's interesting. He doesn't go back through and just put, you know, run out all four witnesses again. He just sticks with one. He says, you know what? God the Father's with me. You guys need to understand this. I've already trotted out the other witnesses. You didn't listen to that. You need to know that Yahweh, the one you claim to serve, is with me and has my back. And the way he says this, and he says this a lot in John, is he says that he was sent by the Father. And we just see that, and we just think, oh, well, the Father sent him. The Father just sent him. 
or whatever. But there's, there's something more to this than just that because if the Father sent him, it indicates that Jesus is the Father's representative. And if Jesus is the Father's representative, then Jesus has all the authority of the Father. And Jesus has been tasked with doing the purposes and executing the purposes of God the Father. All of this is encompassed in this word. And Jesus has told them multiple times in John 5, I simply desire to fulfill the desires of my Father. What he does, I do. What he says, I say. I'm completely reliant upon him. Jesus has tried to communicate that with this very crowd. And again, they're missing it. So the idea of being sent by the Father was always an appeal by Jesus to say, look, I'm doing what I do at the behest of the one who sent me. This is why healing on the Sabbath is okay. Guess who told me to do it? Guess whose resources I'm relying upon to do this? It's Yahweh. The very one you claim to worship is the one leading me, directing me, and guiding me, and it's true here in judgment. Now, Jesus, as a wise teacher, he's made some startling statements. Self-witness, I am the light of the world. The Father's got my back. And now Jesus is going to appeal to a standard that his, his listeners would agree is a standard. He's going to appeal to the word of God. He's going to appeal to the law of Moses. And this is what he says in verse 17. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Now, where's he going with this? Jesus has just given them two witnesses that are in full agreement, that have each other's back. One of the witnesses is the God of the universe. They're not sure what to make out of Jesus, but he's claiming that the God of the universe has got his back, is on his side. This should be enough according to their law to convince them. This is where Jesus, again, it's a shorthand version of John 5. This is just a side note, but a lot of times in the New Testament, you'll see the the phrase, it is written. Well, it's referring to the Old Testament, but I love how the, the New Testament writers write this. It's always in the perfect passive indicative, indicating that it was completed in the past. It was written in the past with ongoing results. It was written and it remains written. It was recorded as God's truth and it remains God's truth. You know, many people look at the Bible and say, that's just an outdated document, 2,000 years old. It's got no relevance to today. That phrase right there would completely destroy that type of thinking. It was written 2,000 years ago, parts of it. And it's still as valid today as it was the day it was written, and this phrase actually brings that out. Jesus is saying that it is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. So from a human level, two witnesses, that's enough to convict somebody. We find that in Deuteronomy 19, 13 there at the end. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So that's from a human level. Jesus had provided five earlier, and now he provides two. One of those witnesses being the eternal God, Yahweh, in his corner. This should have been enough. This is what Jesus is going to go on to say, is that this dual testimony is trustworthy. He says, I am one, in verse 18, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Now, Jesus uses this articulated participle. He's a witness bearer. He's basically a witness bearer of himself. But he also goes on to say that the sender of him is presently and at this moment bearing witness of him as well. And this is one of the things that I think his audience just missed. They just didn't understand how God the Father was actually testifying of Jesus Christ right in front of their eyes. They missed all of these things. They were misinterpreting everything because of their view uh, on these technicalities. And so God the Father, as Jesus makes this claim in verse 12, going back to this comment that he is the light of the world, God the Father is basically saying, amen. He is, and he's using 
testimony to do that. They're going to ask or they're going to think, well, what testimony is he talking about? What we're going to see is that God has been communicating all throughout the life of Jesus, actively and presently, as to who Jesus Christ is and why they could trust him. Jesus has no doubt that the Father's testimony concerning him is not only true, but that alone is valid legal testimony. This is why he keeps going back to this. He's like, guys, if you just considered what I'm saying, I'm giving you two witnesses, this alone should validate what I'm saying, or at least encourage you to investigate it further. That's, I think, where he was going. Conceptually, 100 human witnesses versus two divine witnesses, where do you, which one would you go with? You would go with two divine. At least if someone basically tried to, to call on a divine witness, you'd be like, well, we probably should consider this a little bit more. But this is not how they're going to respond, as we're going to see. And what were the ways that God the Father had testified of Jesus during his ministry? Let me just give three. First, he provided the empowerment for Jesus to do the miracles that he had done. We see that in John 5, 36, when he was detailing that section. But even look at Nicodemus's comment in John 3, too. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, what do we know? That you are a teacher come from God. Why do we know that, Nicodemus? Because, or for, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. See, Nicodemus was picking up on the testimony from God the Father. He was one of the same guys that Jesus is talking to here. He's a religious Pharisee, and yet he was following the breadcrumbs a little bit. He was stepping into the light a little bit, just trying to analyze this and understand this with a pure heart, which was what this was designed to do. Jesus's life was designed to do that, to draw people in to investigate. We can see Nicodemus knew enough about Jesus early on in his ministry, something's different about this guy, and I'm gonna go check it out was kind of his attitude. The rest of them weren't thinking that way. How else did God the Father testify? He verbally testified of his pleasure with Jesus at Jesus's water baptism. He said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was a testimony that God the Father had given regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. And then he continued to testify through the written word that remained written that they could go back and validate and verify all throughout the Old Testament, who the Messiah was, when he would be born, what types of works he would do, where he would be born. That was also confusion, right? As we lit the candle this morning, it's out of Bethlehem. So they thought, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to grow up in Bethlehem. He's going to appear out of Bethlehem for his public ministry. And when they heard that Jesus was from Galilee, they wrote him off because of a misinterpretation of Micah 5.2. Again, they just didn't consider that there might be another interpretation that he was born there, but that he would be from somewhere else, that he would grow up somewhere else, but he was born there. They never even investigated those things. These are all designed to help them step into the light. How do the religious leaders respond? Jesus says, well, my father testifies of me. My father's in agreement. My father's on my back. How do they respond? And this is where they get, I believe, a little snarky with them. Because basically, they say, well, where's your second witness? Let me talk to him. The reason I say snarky is, verse 19, let's read this. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now, this is why I believe they're getting a little snarky with them. Because when it says that they said to him, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning they kept on saying to him, oh yeah, where's your father? No, no, where's your father? Yeah, tell us where your father is. We'd like to know that. Where's your father? We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're simply following up on what Jesus said. They're like, oh, he said his father was this, where's he at? It could have been, give them the benefit of the doubt. That might have been that. But based on what we're going to see later, it most likely a slur 
regarding the events of his birth. Because if you'll just really quickly in John 8, 41, just jump down to verse 41. And notice what this same group says in the same conversation a little bit later. Jesus says, he's speaking here, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. You see that, I think the story of the virgin birth had gotten out by this time. And I think what they're saying, oh yeah, go get your father. No one knows who your father is. Go get him. Go get him. Where's he at? Where's he at? Where's he at? And I think they were, they were coming after him that way in this situation. Now, that might be reading too much, but I think there's a little, at least a little subtle criticism here, a little subtle jab as to his origin in his birth. And the fact that they kept on saying, where's your father, seems to support that that's what they're doing here. But, but again, we can't say for sure. We got, we'll try to give them the benefit. They weren't giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt, but we'll try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they were trying to pursue these witnesses. But what Jesus is going to say is, you just have ignorance of who my father is. That's the problem. You don't know intuitively, perfect tense. You never have known him and you continue not to know him is what he's saying here. And this is really their problem. It's like anything in life. The religious leaders think their problem is, is the person standing in front of them. That's not their problem. The problem is their lack of knowledge of God. What's crazy is they would take pride in their knowledge of God. And what Jesus is saying, you don't even know him. And that's your problem. That's really the issue here is their ignorance of Yahweh. Even though he's tried to communicate and validate and verify his Messiah, these leaders still reject everything designed to convince him. They claimed to know the Father, didn't they? That was their big claim to faith. But because they rejected the Father's representative, it revealed that they didn't even know the Father. They exposed themselves by their attitude toward Jesus, and they just completely missed him. And the problem also, again, this goes back to their evaluation. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. First class condition, Jesus is assuming the reality. If you had known me, let's assume for argument's sake that you did. Let's assume, for argument's sake, that you know me. And did they know Jesus? Well, they thought they did, right? He's a deceiver from Nazareth. We know this guy. We don't need to learn anything more about him. The problem is they had never known them. Jesus uses the same word for known, but he switches verb tenses. There's a verb tense in the Greek. You don't hear it much. It's kind of rare. It's called the pluperfect. He uses the pluperfect here. And the significance of that is it denotes an action that was completed in the past, without respect to whether those results exist in the present. What he's basically saying is, if you had ever known me in the past, assuming that you did at some point, then you would have known my connection to the Father. He's basically saying, in no uncertain terms, you never knew me. You never, ever have known me, and thus you've never known the Father. This would have been a hard statement for these religious leaders to swallow. In fact, Jesus is not doing himself any favors here. They're just going to hate him more now. We're going to see that bear out throughout this chapter because at the end of chapter 8, guess what these very people he's conversing with are going to do? They're going to pick up stones to stone him. They're going to get to the point where they're saying, you know what? We're not even going to leave it to the temple guards anymore. The officers, we wanted them to go get him in chapter 7. They refused to. We're just going to take matters in our own hands. We're going to kill him. And we're going to see how the Lord gets him out of that, how Yahweh gets him out of that situation. Verse 20, Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one laid hands on him for his hour has not yet come. We talked about this treasury. It's the court of the Gentiles, this public treasure, which was kept in one of the courts of the temple. One of the things that you'll see is the court of the women was in this area of the treasury. 
It was the most, one of the most busiest places in the temple compound on a typical day. It's where people gathered. The reason it was called the treasury is they had these containers. They looked like trumpets, so they called them trumpets. There's 13 of them. And this is where people would put their, their tithes and offerings. They would just throw them in these trumpets. They were containers. Obviously, if you're throwing coins in there, they made a noise. Each trumpet in that temple had an inscription on how the priests intended to use that money. So you had 13 options. Oh, I like, yeah, I want to feed the, I want to feed the poor. All right, let me throw it in there. I'm going to throw it in that one. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. So they had these inscriptions on how they're going to use it. This is going to be the same exact area that Jesus is going to make this startling statement during Passion Week, during his final week on earth. He's getting ready to get crucified. You would think he'd be kind of gritting his teeth, getting ready to be crucified. And he's over there rejoicing in this little widow, throwing two mites into one of these trumpets. He's like, man, that's so precious to me. And here he is. He's getting ready to lose his life. And he's just paying attention to what people are doing. This is a picture of what one of those trumpets might have looked. You can kind of see how it looks like a trumpet. But that was the containers that would catch it. This is where Jesus is speaking. It's in this treasury area of the temple. The point is this. Jesus had said all of these things in a very public manner. He wasn't hiding anything at all. But guess what? John brings out here at verse 20. It's still wrong timing. They still can't get him. They're still six months off from being able to get him. In fact, it says no no one laid hands on him. means to press, squeeze, grab, lay hold of, seize. Remember in John 7, we looked at that. There are multiple times they wanted to get him. They made plans to get him, but they couldn't do it. And from a human perspective, remember why? The guards are like, we never heard any man speak like this. We're going to leave him alone. We're not grabbing him because he's something special. And the leaders got very upset about that. That was the human side of it, but there was a divine side. God had a stopwatch. God had perfect timing. In fact, as one commentator said, they couldn't lay a hand on him because the Father's hand was over him. But God had a perfect time frame for Jesus' death. And it wasn't, six, it wasn't until six months from here that he was going to remove his hand and allow him to be taken, allow him to die a criminal's death for each one of us. We see that his hour is not yet come. His hour again all throughout the book of John. God has got a stopwatch, a timetable when Jesus would die the death that he came to die. But it wasn't going to happen any sooner. It wasn't going to happen any later. It was going to happen right on time. As you see this borne out in the book of John. God had predicted the death of the Messiah down to the day in Daniel chapter 9. There's an incredible prophecy known as the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, where 483 years from a decree, the Messiah would be cut off. God had predicted the exact time of Jesus's death. So he had to keep that on the right timetable. But we also learned this from Galatians 4, 4 through 5, which by the way, you'll see I put something in parentheses. The thing I put in parentheses is not in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. I just want to make a connection to our Christmas story because we all know Isaiah 9, 6, and I want you to see Isaiah 9, 6 in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and I'll pull that up now. This is Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, Isaiah 9, 6, a son was given. He was born of a woman, Isaiah 9, 6, a child is born, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. When you see this phrase in the scripture that was not yet his hour, rejoice. God knows what he's doing. God moves human history according to his plan. There's nothing to fear in the future. There's nothing to fear in the present. Our God is in control. And we see it even just born out here in the life of Jesus Christ where you've got 
people who are fire hot mad. I mean, they couldn't get any more mad than what they're going to get here at the end of chapter 8. And they literally go to pick up stones. There's like an air block right here. They cannot swing the arm. They can't cut the stones loose. It's just amazing the protection that Jesus had. We'll see that as we go forward in the conversation in John chapter 8. Let me close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the the Lord Jesus. I uh, Just even in looking at this passage, we just see his heart and his desire to communicate, his desire to convince and persuade through adequate testimony the, the nature of his identity, the nature of who he is and what he came to do. And yet, Lord, there are still many in our day that don't understand what Jesus was saying. Lord, we pray for those people specifically that they would be convinced They would look at Jesus Christ and just understand exactly who he is and what he means to them, that he died for their sins so that they wouldn't have to face that penalty, that he rose again, and that by rising from the dead, we can be convinced and persuaded that you are completely satisfied with what he did for us on our behalf. May you just be working in hearts and minds that are struggling with understanding that concept and and persuade them to put their faith in you alone and your finished work for them alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.